Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. We have a very uh, serious and important topic, or a series of topics. Getting to know yourself. We don't really know ourselves. And that's a serious religious or spiritual problem, because knowing yourself is so essential to serving God. But it turns out that knowing yourself is also essential for good health. We are not healthy if we don't understand ourselves. Certainly psychologically not healthy, but of course we know that when you're psychologically unhealthy, it affects the body as well. So knowing yourself has become necessary, literally necessary, for physical health. Just to be a healthy person, we need to know what we are. Now in psychology, modern psychology, we are given insights into various dysfunctions in the human psyche with perhaps some treatments for those dysfunctions. But taken all together, we don't have an image, a picture, a model of what is a healthy human being. And how do you get there? How do you get to be a healthy human being? Firstly, what is our definition of a human being? What is a human being? Let's work with this definition just for starters. Definition of a human being is a creature whose emotions are guided by intelligence. That's what sets us apart from all other creatures, from all other creations. Not just that we have intelligence or more intelligence, than other creatures, but that our emotions are guided by our intelligence. That really makes us unique because there are angels that are more intelligent than us. There are angels that have stronger emotions than us. The angel of kindness has more kindness than we'll ever have. But we are the only creatures who have this combination of emotion and intelligence where the intelligence actually guides the emotion. Or in different words, we are the only creatures that have intelligent emotions. A healthy human being then would be someone who has successfully guided his emotions according to his reason and intelligence. A person whose emotions are not that guided by intelligence are lacking intelligent influence is not the healthiest person. This does not depend on the degree of intelligence, by the way. It's not that if you're very smart, then your emotions will be guided by your intelligence. Unfortunately, that's not true. Some of the smartest people can also be the worst people, emotionally. Professor Einstein wrote a letter to his uh, future wife saying, 
you will not expect any affection from me. The intelligence was there, but not the corresponding emotions. So let's understand what exactly this effect of the mind on the emotions would look like. The mind governs the heart. That is a principle, fundamental uh, concept in Hasidic philosophy, in Chabad philosophy. That the mind governs the heart. Because the mind governs the heart, we are capable of making choices. We have choices, we are free to make choices, because the mind governs the heart. If the mind doesn't govern the heart, then you're out of control. You have no choices. It wouldn't matter what you choose. You're going to end up doing whatever your heart tells you anyway, except that your mind will ruin all the fun, <laughs> just make you feel guilty. But you're going to do it anyway because your heart is not guided or governed by your intelligence. So. Whatever you're taught, whatever you learn, whatever you think, makes no difference. The heart will win out in the end anyway. Let's use an example. Children have very strong emotions before their intelligence develops. And this goes on for years. At least 12 years for a girl, 13 years for a boy, before the boy becomes a man. Becoming a man is meant, on the Bar Mitzvah day, is meant to suggest, to indicate, that now his intelligence is governing his emotions. Now he's a mensch. But the emotions are there for at least 12 years before the intelligence can gain control or mastery over them. Having had free reign for 12 years, it is not that easy for the mind to now gain control and influence and guide the emotions intelligently. That's why even at a very young age, a child needs to be treat, treated or trained or motivated to think even when he has an emotion. You know what I mean by that? When a child says, but I don't want to. Part of what you want to do is discipline the child and get him into a schedule so that he goes to sleep on time. If a child says, but I don't want to, it's not only a question of how to get him to go to sleep, how to train the child to follow a schedule. The other, and maybe even more important, aspect to this is the opportunity of separating the child from his emotions. So when a child says, but I don't want to, and you say, I understand, I know you don't want to, but, see that's a very important, that's a very important training. You don't want to, you have a certain emotion, you hate this doing this, or you love doing that, but, but you got to listen to your mother. But it's time to go to sleep. What you're basically saying to the child is, 
the emotion is not the end of the story. The fact that you feel strongly one way or the other is not a conclusion. You're only halfway there. Now we know how you feel about it. And what are you supposed to do about it? Well, that, that's a different story. So you're actually helping a child peel himself, or his mind, away from the emotions. The emotions don't dictate. They only influence. They lean one way or the other, but they don't dictate. So it is perfectly acceptable to hate doing something and do it anyway. That's okay. It's perfectly okay to love someone, but not marry them. Because it's not good, it's not right, not for you. The argument, but I love, that is not a conclusion. That's something to be considered. You consider and you decide. The emotion doesn't do the deciding. That's a healthy human being. Now, of course, we don't go to the opposite extreme where we don't permit any feelings. That is not human. A human being is supposed to have strong emotions, spontaneous feelings. But in those emotions and in that spontaneity, there has to be a certain influence that is obvious, that is felt, that is coming from the mind, from the intelligence. The emotions are real, but they're also intelligent. So the mind does not stifle the emotion. The mind does not forbid an emotion. That's not a healthy human being. Let's use an example, an incident, an occasion, when you want to do something that is forbidden. You're going to steal something. You've been tempted for a long time, you've resisted, you can't resist anymore. You're going to steal it. There are three aspects to that temptation. And each of them has a different response coming from a different place within us. So if we know ourselves, we will understand what is happening. Just very briefly, here's the problem. This guy says to you, I know I shouldn't do this. I know it's wrong. But I'm going to steal. I'm going to steal that diamond. And you say, you really shouldn't do that. This is not a good idea. And he says, I know. But I'm going to do it. What are the dynamics here? What is going on in this person? Now you can say he's weak-willed. You can say he's immoral. You can say he's inconsistent. You're not getting to the heart of the issue. First, before you condemn him, first define, describe, understand what is happening. The mechanics, the mechanism, what's going on. So think of it this way. There is reason, there is will, and there is pleasure. We'll talk about each of them in a moment. When I want to steal something, 
I have three motivations. Three. My first is that I've reasoned it through and I have come to the decision that it's not so terrible. Nish Giferlach. It's not so terrible. Nobody will notice it's missing. It's no big deal. It'll make my life so much easier. I'll be able to do so many good things with this money. I've got it all worked out. So my mind is saying, go ahead. My reason has cleared the way. We can do this now. I've got it figured out. Not how to do it, but that it's justified. Of course, if somebody else did it, it would be terrible. But my doing it, with my circumstances, under my conditions, it's okay. Or it's not that bad. Now, if you want to stop him from stealing, you're going to have to challenge his reasoning. You're going to have to say, you're not thinking straight. It is stealing. What part of thou shalt not, don't you understand? No is no. It's wrong. And giving yourself an excuse and having this, this lame explanation that it, nobody's going to notice, nobody's going to be hurt, who are you kidding? If anybody else gave you that reasoning, you'd laugh at him. And you'd be right. And yet with yourself, you don't see how irrational you're being. Now, if you can convince him, if you're successful in changing his mind, he won't steal. You've taken the wind out of his sails because he thought he was free and clear, and now he's not. He won't do it. Why then do you have this experience so often where a person says, yeah, I know, I know, but I'm going to do it anyway. Obviously, there's a second dynamic working here. A teenager falls in love. A teenage girl falls in love with a, with a, with a criminal. With a guy who abuses women, who steals their money. He's married six times. And you say, don't do this. And you give her all the rational arguments. You're going to get hurt. You can't trust him. He's not nice. He's not good. You can have a girl who says, you don't know him. I know him. Nobody understands him. That's why everybody says he's bad. But I know him. And he's really good. That's the reasoning. The one we talked about before. She has found a way to rationalize, to explain, to convince herself that she understands, she knows what she's doing, and she's right. Should you convince her that she is not right, and that her reasoning is incorrect, she's going to do it anyway. But now her reaction will be, not, you don't know him. Her reaction is going to be, but I love him. How can I not marry him? How can I not go with him if I love him? I can't have what I love? That's not thinkable.
So I don't care whether it's rational, reasonable, intelligent, or dumb and ridiculous. And, but, but I love him. Here, what is active is the will. Let's go back to the diamond. The guy says, I know, I, I know I shouldn't. It's, it's, it's really stealing. But I, I just got to do it. Why? I want to. I really want to. I've waited a long time. And I need this money. And I got I to gotta pay my bills. And I, I, need, I have to. I'm going to do it because I decided. I want to do this. Now, if you come along to the person and say, well, so what if you want? You can't do it anyway. See, this the person cannot accept. So here we have a different problem. It's not faulty reasoning. It's the attitude or the belief or the assumption that if a person really wants to do something, no one can tell him not to, including himself. How do I tell myself not to when I want to? How do I get around the fact of my will? Suppose we find a way and we convince the person that he really doesn't even want to do it anymore. You don't need to pay your bills, I'll pay your bill. Problem solved. Or, when we get around to it, if we find the method by which we control our will and we use that method and now the person says, okay, fine. I know it's wrong, and I, I don't even really want to. And the next thing you know, he steals the diamond. What happened? Now you can say, you lied to me. You said you didn't want to anymore. Obviously you did. Not necessarily. There's a third dynamic. There's a third influence, and that is pleasure. The pleasure. Let's say I keep kosher, I eat only kosher, and one day I'm tempted to eat something non-kosher. And I give myself all sorts of reasons. It's not so terrible, it's only this one time, I will be keeping kosher for the rest of my life, how bad can it be to make an exception one time, I'm out of town, I'm at the airport, I haven't eaten, the plane is delayed, I'm going to be hungry. And then I realize, well, who am I kidding? What am I saying? If it's not kosher, it's not kosher. Don't play these games. You want to eat it, go ahead and eat it. But at least be honest and admit that you're sinning. Don't play games. So I fix my mind. I got my head on straight now. No more games. It's wrong. I know it's wrong. It's a sin. I should not do it. But I want to. But I want to. But I think about this a little more. And I find out that I don't really want to. The truth is, I should be dieting anyway. And the food that I'm going to get over here, you know, this says fast food junk, this is not good. I, mean, I don't really want this. So now, I don't think it's a good idea, and I don't want it. And I eat it. Because the fact that I think it's wrong, and the fact that I don't want it, doesn't change the fact that it tastes good. There's pleasure there. 
Even when I don't want something, it doesn't change the fact that that thing is pleasurable. Can't fool Mother Nature. It smells good, looks good, tastes good. And I can say, I don't want to. That's, that's true. You don't want to, but you will enjoy the pleasure. That's an example where I don't think it's a good idea, and I don't want to, and somebody slips it into my mouth against my will. Will it taste good or not? Yes, it'll taste good. It is a pleasurable thing. So if a person goes ahead and does it anyway, after saying, I don't want to, he wasn't lying, necessarily. He didn't want to. It was not his will, it was his pleasure that made him do it. Now here's, here's a practical consideration. Every human being is capable of understanding that wrong is wrong. Can't steal. There is no stealing. There's no rationalization, there's no argument, there's no reasoning that can possibly make this okay. Every person is capable of that. Every good person has already reached that conclusion. No is no. Wrong is wrong. It's not yours, then you can't have it. We got that. How many people can raise themselves to the level where if it's wrong, then I don't want it? See, that's more challenging. You really don't want it? Every person, every Jew who keeps kosher doesn't want to eat non-kosher food? on occasion, doesn't want. It's harder, but it is certainly possible. A person can train their own will to where they want what is right and don't want what is wrong. It's not easy, but it's possible. The third thing to not find pleasure in something because it is wrong, we're not capable of that. That is beyond us. So if a person says, I made a mistake. I didn't realize. I thought it was kosher. I thought the diamond was mine. I didn't intend to steal it. I don't want to steal it, but I did. I took it by accident, unintentionally, unknowingly, and I sold it, and I made some money, and I paid my bills, and I really regret it. I'm sorry. I'm going to give back the money eventually, if I can ever afford to, and uh, I'll make up. I'll make it up. However, I paid all my bills. Feels really good. I feel bad about what happened, but I feel very good about having paid my bills. I can't help that. Should I feel guilty that I take pleasure in the result? If I, if I feel guilty about it, it's because I'm arrogant and I think that I am on the verge of sainthood. Only a true tzaddik only the truly righteous that are rare individuals will find no pleasure 
in that which is forbidden. To average human beings, that is not available. That is not even a possibility. We cannot control what gives us pleasure. We can refuse to do it. We can choose to do it. But we cannot decide whether it will taste good or not. That's beyond our control. And of course, the same is true with all pleasures. I can say I don't want it and mean it sincerely. But I cannot claim that if I did it, I would have no pleasure. That's a stretch. So how do we handle these three dimensions? What does it mean the mind controls the heart if there is more to the heart, <laughs> more to the heart than meets the eye? When I want to do something, when I'm attracted to something, it's not just the emotion versus the reason, it's also the will. It's also the pleasure. If I could identify in each instant when I want something, when I'm attracted to something, or when I refuse to do something, if I could clearly and correctly identify the issue, is this my reasoning that's faulty? Is this my will that is leading me astray? Or is it the pleasure that I can't refuse? Because what works for one will not work for the other. And that's why we sometimes get so frustrated. You're arguing with somebody about what they're doing or how they're behaving. And you're, you're being so reasonable. You're being so logical. And you're explaining it so well. And you're appealing to their intelligence. And they look like they understand. And then they go ahead and do it anyway. Where did you fail? What went wrong? What went wrong is you were fixing the wrong thing in the first place. Their motivation wasn't coming from their reasoning. It was coming from their will. So you destroyed their reasoning. Useless. That's not their problem. Their problem is, how do you say no to your own want? See, that, that does not compute. If I want it, how can I deny it? I mean, even some fields of psychology get hung up on this. You can't tell a person not to do what they want. That's repressive. If we were incapable of ignoring our own will, we wouldn't have civilization at all. There would be no civilization. And you may think that civilization is not very real anyway. It's just a very thin veneer of politeness. But whatever it is, we wouldn't have it if we weren't capable of putting aside things we really want. And yet we don't do it because of a greater good. Because someone else doesn't want if we teach children to separate their mind from their emotions, then it becomes possible to say to a child, you want to go to the park, but your brother doesn't like going to the park. 
So where else should we go? If you don't separate a child's mind from his emotion, how do you expect them to consider somebody else when they already have a want? There wouldn't be any room for such a consideration. Where does another person's will enter into my life? I want to go. And you see children who are that way. They cannot entertain someone else's will when they have a will of their own. But I want to go. Yeah, but your brother doesn't like going. So we're, no, I want to go. Obviously, this is not limited to children. If we don't learn this as children, we grow up with it and we continue it into adulthood, only we're a little more intelligent about it. We don't just stand there and throw a tantrum. We scheme. Sure, fine. Go right ahead. I don't want to. Well, well we have to go. All right. I'll go. But if it doesn't work out, remember I told you so. I am not changing my will. I'm not giving in on my will. I'm just more manipulative now because I'm smarter. And I will have my way one way or the other. The child is too honest. The child just stands there and says, I don't want to. How do we get ourselves to a place where not only is my opinion not the final word on reality, but even my will is not the final word? Now think of this in terms of marriage. A man says, you know, I think to his wife, he says, you know, I think we should, I think we should buy that house. What do you think? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that impressive? I think we should. I like that house. I want to buy that house. What do you think? We take it for granted. But now that we understand the mechanics, listen to what's going on here. I think it's good. I like the house. I want to buy it. And all of that, I am putting aside and saying, what do you think? What do you want? Do you like this house? And if you don't, then we're not buying it. Where do we get this ability? How is that even possible? When you already have a will, when you've already decided, when you've already fallen in love with the house, when you think it's a good house for all the following reasons, and you've got a long list of reasons, and yet you ask someone else what they think? That's fantastic. That is very impressive. How do we do that? Let's say the husband says, I think this is a good house for following reasons. I like this house. It feels comfortable. I want to buy this house. But if you don't like it or if you don't want it, then we won't. I'm not going to be happy about it. 
because this house would give me pleasure. And if we don't buy it, then I will be losing that pleasure. But that I can't help. Or the other way around. The wife finds a house, she thinks it's good, she wants to buy it, and asks you, the husband whether he wants to. The husband says, no, but if you want to, then we'll buy it. I bend my will to you. I bend my reasoning to you. I don't think it's such a good house, but if you think it is, you're probably right. I don't like it, but if you like it, that's what's important. I don't want it, but if you want it, I'll buy it for you. Now, don't expect me to enjoy it. See, that's going already too far. Because the pleasure I can't control. I am not a tzaddik. In the following uh, lectures, we will talk about how the mind influences the heart. And we will make the distinction. Will dictates to the rest of the system. When you want something, the will, the want, does not reason with you. It demands. The will says to the mind, figure this out. Because we're going to do this. It's got to happen. And the will says to the heart, you better like it because we're doing it. It's a dictator. And there is nothing so powerful as the will. And nothing can stand in its way. And that's why we have this sometimes exaggerated expression, if you want, everything is possible. Well, everything internal, not external. If you want, the ocean is not going to change its course. But internally, when you want something, the mind will cooperate, the heart will cooperate, and the body will cooperate. The will to live can keep a person alive when he has no business being alive, medically. But the will can dictate, can tell the body to heal. Why? Because I want to. Listen to a child when he tells you what he wants. It is not a reasonable statement. It's dictatorial. It's almost threatening. I want to. Which means, watch yourself. <laughs> you're in trouble now because I want to and you're in danger. There's a tone of threat in that. Because will cannot be reasoned with. Sometimes that's very good. Sometimes you need to be unreasonable. People who are too reasonable can't get anything done. You know, like Tevya. This is wrong. Well, but on the other hand, every leader, every king, every president has to be more determined than intelligent. Intelligent people should be professors because they can give you both sides of the story. But if you're a leader, you have to make a decision. You can't have two sides to the story or nothing will happen. No decision will ever stick. Philosophers don't make good leaders. 
So there are times when the will, being a dictator, is appropriate and necessary. The mind affects the person internally, affects the emotions, the thoughts, the speech, the behavior, but it does it with a very different style. It appeals to the rest of the system. It's seductive. When something starts to make sense to you, it draws the heart. Like a really good teacher gets the student's attention. And not just to have them listen, but to have them enjoy what they're listening to. It gives the student pleasure to understand what the teacher is saying, because there's a pleasure to understanding. There's a light that intelligence brings, that knowledge brings, and that light is very appealing. So when the mind reasons with the heart, it's not dictating, it's appealing. So here's how a good person would function. When the reasoning is faulty or immoral, we are taught, since the days of, since the event at Sinai, we are taught how to reason goodness. When you explain to your children how right it is to be good, to be kind, to share, to be honest, to tell the truth, it's reasonable, it's appealing. And if you have the right story, with the right example, with the right analogies, and you, you paint that picture, it is convincing, it is satisfying to the heart, and the heart is moved by it. What happens if the desire to misbehave is not coming from the reasoning, it's coming from the fact that I do what I want, and I want. Here the response cannot be a reasonable one. You can't reason with want. Want is a dictator. How then do you influence your own want? By considering a greater want. Someone more important than you wants the opposite. So whose will is going to dictate? You fight reason with reason, you fight will with will. And that's why if we don't know what God wants, or we're not sure that he really wants it, then we have no weapon with which to overcome our own faulty wants. And no amount of reasoning is going to do it. This is where the frustration and the failure comes in. Your child wants to do something wrong and you reason with him. And the only thing you accomplish is that your child thinks you're a nudnik. The child thinks you're a pest. Because every time he wants to do something that he wants to do, you start with these lectures, with these talks, he tunes you out, he doesn't hear a word you're saying. Because what you're saying is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what makes sense or doesn't make sense. I want it. So we try harder. 
We read more books, get better arguments, present different motivational tools. We bribe, we threaten. It doesn't work because we're not dealing with the issue. The issue is, can my will be contradicted? I should deny what I want? What is your answer to that? Well, you really shouldn't want it. This is not working. I do want it. The only proper response is, there is somebody more important whose will is more important. That may be your mother. It may be the general in the army, if you're a soldier. It certainly is God when we know what he wants, when we're sure that he wants what he wants. Then we have a tool. Now, reasonably, if you ask a child, if you want to go and God wants you to stay, whose will should be obeyed? I think most children would say God's will. Oh, the only thing that's necessary, he has to be convinced that God wants. Once he knows God wants, there's no contest. When it comes to the pleasure, a person should never be so arrogant as to think, I can get rid of the pleasure if it's wrong. If I shouldn't have pleasure, I won't. That's arrogant. It's unrealistic, it's not true, and it's not going to happen. The pleasure will not go away. What then is our response to that? A mindful, thoughtful response. Our response is, being that I cannot avoid the pleasure, therefore I should avoid the circumstance. Since I can't deny the pleasure, I have to avoid the event. But the person who is so arrogant as to say, oh, I can do that and it won't give me any pleasure. You don't realize what you're saying. And the person says, but I understand that it's wrong and I don't even want to do it, so why would it give me pleasure? Don't confuse the issues. So the fact that something wrong can give me pleasure should produce within me a sense of humility. Yes, I can control my thinking. I can even control my will. But that's all. After that, I admit I can't control that. The pleasure in it is determined by the Creator, not by me. So being good now entails three things. To think straight and not, not let your, your reasoning be twisted. Number two, there's got to be someone who is more important than you in this whole universe. Otherwise, you're a monster. And number three, know what you can't do. Admit your limitations. That's what it takes to be a healthy person. To be a healthy human being, to be a mensch, means 
If my thinking is wrong, I'll correct it. What I want is not the most important thing in the world. There are other wants more important. And I'm not all-powerful. I can be victimized by my own pleasures. So I'm careful. I stay away. With these three principles, we begin to be a mensch. But again, in order to do that, we have to really understand how these things function. Where does will come from? Where does intelligence come from? Why should intelligence be able to control an emotion? These are fascinating subjects and important pieces of information just to know who we are. To get a handle. And again, you see children at a very young age these days who are so frustrated. They're so confused. They're so lost. And you ask them why? What, what's bothering you? What are you upset about? And they can't tell you. And some wise people will say it's because they have a low self-image and they're just down on themselves. And some will tell you that they probably have been abused and so they're damaged emotionally. And some will tell you that it's uh, just one of these phases they're going through where they have strong feelings but they can't articulate them. All of that may be true, but we're not getting to the bottom. We're not getting to the to the reality. Children are confused, frustrated, and depressed when they don't know. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to be. You give a child a clear direction. You give them a clear picture of where they ought to be. There isn't a child in the world who could resist that. A child given a healthy image of himself and of life will pursue life. Most kids today are so confused about where they ought to be that they go nowhere. So, hopefully, by the end of these three lectures, we will have a much better handle on life. And the result will be a greater enthusiasm for life, a greater comfort with ourselves, a greater comfort in our abilities, and even in our inabilities. Know yourself, and half your problems are gone. The other half you can handle. So that's a, that's a mensch. Principle number one, before we go on to next week's pro topic, the mind governs the heart, because if it doesn't, then you are addicted. You're addicted to your own feelings, addicted to your own pleasure, addicted to your own will. It's not very far to go from there to be addicted to gambling, or to drugs, or whatever else it is. But you start off addicted. If I want, how can I not? If I think it's right, how can it be wrong? If it gives me pleasure, then why would I deny it? 
I'm addicted. I've never peeled away. Mind controls the heart means I stand back and I look at what I want and I look at what gives me pleasure and I look at what I think. And if there's anything wrong with it, I can correct it. I can take steps. I'm not addicted. Does this make any sense? I'll take that for a yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, off the record, when, when I started studying Hasidus as a child, the thing that, that amazed me, the thing that captured me was, so that's what it is. Oh, so that's what it is. It is so enjoyable. It is so satisfying to understand yourself. Oh, so that's what I was doing when I was behaving the way I was behaving. Torah's wisdom. There's nothing better. And we need to replace our amateur psychological model of ourselves with a more value-based model. A human being weighs things not by how healthy they are, but by how moral they are. Never see a person saying, ah, I was going to do that, but then I thought about it and I thought, it's not so psychologically healthy. <laughs> Nobody does that. But there are people who say, I was going to do that, but I realized it was not right. So my better judgment told me not to do it. By the way, where does better judgment come from? Your mind is telling you to do it, but your better judgment, what is that? It is such a fascinating subject. And for that alone, I mean, aside from how Hasidic philosophy explains creation and the purpose of life and God's attributes and divine character, just what it tells you about the human soul for that alone, it's worth years of study. It's just absolutely fascinating. To be continued. Have you got any questions? You mentioned and you actually used it as a question. You said, where does the will come from? I know there are two more lectures. Maybe in the third lecture there'll be a complete answer. But you made it such a strong point that those that have that strong will become leaders. And in order to be a leader, you have to have that ability. Where, where does that will that you talk come from that causes people to think that they have that power? when it could be very destructive. Where does it and, and they do have the power.
and they are destructive. But where did that will, that desire to say, I want it, where does that come from? I mean, you born with it? Is it genetic? Is it, okay. is it part of our makeup? Me, and if it is, how do we eliminate it or control it? Let me, let me give you this uh, Kabbalistic picture. It works something like this. When God first created the world, we are told that the world was in its infancy, in a state of chaos. Then during the six days of creation, God brought order to the chaos. What does chaos mean? It means a confusion of dark and light, good and bad, right and wrong. Order means clarity, separation, good is good, bad is bad, right is right, wrong is wrong. In our soul, we have two conditions. We have a condition of chaos and we have a condition of orderliness. The difference being, the stuff that goes on above intelligence, pre-intelligence, is chaos. There's no boss, or everyone is a boss. What I want, I want. What I like, I like. What I hate, I hate. Orderliness begins in the mind. And that's why the first step in creating order, God said, let there be light. Light means intelligence, clarity. The trick is, when the impulses come directly from the soul to the behavior or to the emotions and they skip the mind, then you have chaos. When it comes through the mind, when it's processed through the mind, the mind modifies, the mind makes things reasonable. These leaders don't allow their mind to modify their will. It's not important to them. They don't care whether it makes sense or not. It's what they want. And the want short-circuits the mind and goes directly to the emotions. That is the world of chaos. Evil basically comes from the world of chaos. However, God didn't create it just to be evil. There are times when we need that power because the chaos world is much more powerful than the reasonable world. It's just dangerous because chaos means good and bad. You never know how it's going to turn out. So the mind makes things more predictable, safer, more orderly, more constructive. Chaos, it could be good, it could be terrible. But when it's good, it is good. And sometimes that is necessary. So, for example, uh, the, the, the Inquisition. They come to this Jew and say, look, you're not very Jewish anyway. Why don't you just convert and bow to the cross and otherwise we'll kill you? And they won't bow. What's happening then is that the, the will, as it exists in the world of chaos, not tempered by intelligence, was threatened and it's reacting and there's nothing you can say and nothing you can do to change this guy's mind because his mind is irrelevant. 
He cannot do it. Uh, incidents where people pick up trucks to get it off a baby, or they do, they pick up a truck because a baby is stuck under the truck. Oh, right. You can't pick up a truck. But when the power of that chaotic state of the soul ignores the mind, then it can do anything. Only the mind says, but we can't. If you don't listen to the mind, then you can. By the same token, if you don't listen to the mind, you can be Hitler. What was he thinking, right? People say, what was he thinking? What makes you think he was thinking? They asked him once, how do you think you can get away with this? He says, it's not a matter of getting away with. If you win, you win. Then you don't have to explain anything. There was no reasoning here. There was brutal willpower. And you can have the same in the positive. Yes, sir. The reaction is very quiet. When the food is very good, it's getting, the room gets quiet. The question uh, is when you're dealing with somebody else and it's their will that's making them do something that's wrong. If you're suggesting if they can believe that God is more important than their opinion, their, their will, God's will is more important than their will, it would be easier to change their behavior. Is there any other way? If their answer is, well, that's just an opinion. If you read them, say the Torah says this is the way it's supposed to be, and you say, well, that's your opinion. How would you dissect that and try to... This is a tragedy of our time. When you quote the Torah and people say, well, that's just your interpretation. If everything is simply a matter of interpretation, then we don't know what God wants. If we don't know what God wants, we're handicapped. Because then what I want is divine, is almighty. There's another tragedy of our times, and that is that people don't have mentors. A woman says to me, I'm going out, I want to get married. What should I look for? What, what, what questions should I ask a guy? So one of my suggestions is ask him who his mentor is. And if he says, I don't have a mentor. Well, then if after you're married, you think he's doing something wrong, and he doesn't think he's doing something wrong, who can you go to who could tell him that he's wrong? Nobody. It's a dangerous man. That's a dangerous man. No one can tell him that he's wrong and have any authority. That's a dangerous person. So not having a mentor, and a mentor basically means somebody whose opinion stands above your own, who can say, you're wrong, stop it. And no arguments. Cut it out. That is such a healthy thing. And we don't have it anymore because we are all rugged individuals. We all got the, the John Wayne syndrome. So, two things. First of all, to teach Torah correctly. The whole point, the whole purpose of studying Torah, which is what our ancestors have done for 3,000 years, our best minds, our greatest minds, devoted their lives 
day and night to study in Torah. Why? What were they looking for? They were trying to determine clearly what it is God wants. If we don't have that, if we can't get to this is what God wants, then the game is over. Then all is lost. Then there is no right and wrong. Thou shalt not doesn't mean no. And even if it means no, God doesn't want you to kill, but if you do, it doesn't really bother him. It doesn't really matter to him. Because he doesn't really want one way or the other. He's just trying to help you out. If there is no contradicting will to my will, then why shouldn't I do what I want? So if God is all forgiving and all tolerant and all indifferent, then I'm back to myself again. Then the only will that matters to me is my own. So we have to teach Torah correctly. You open up the Torah and you're basically asking God to tell you, what do you want? Secondly, we have to go back to the system of mentors. No person can be an island unto himself. No person can be an authority unto himself. Whatever I think is right, whatever I want is right, that can't be. But then again, who's to say? Whose will is right? If my will is not right, then yours isn't right either. If my thinking can be faulty, so can yours. So why should I listen to you? The answer is, I should listen to someone else because, because they're not me. I can't trust my reasoning, not because I'm stupid. I can't trust my reasoning because I am involved. I'm biased. I'm not objective. So I don't need a genius to tell me what's right. I just need an objective view. Look at me. Tell me if I'm right. All you need to have is a little bit of moral knowledge and, and a little intelligence. And you're better off than me concerning me. <laughs> concerning you, I'll tell you when you're wrong. Because you're not going to notice. You're biased. So we're really looking for a little more mature observation of ourselves. Because that's going to be more objective. Can't find somebody? There's no one that can be objective and wiser? Come on. We need that. Particularly if you have children. And you want them to listen to you. Because you know better, because you're objective, because you're more mature. And there's no one in the world more objective, mature, and wiser than you.